there was any confusion after yesterday about um, the whole thing of church growth and church size, I want to make it explicitly clear that I confidently believe that God's churches are called to grow. And um, that the scriptures lead us to a profound optimism, actually, about the future of the church. Jesus, in Psalm 2, it says, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So Jesus asks the Father, and the Father is glad to give him the nations. And so when you trace through the scriptures, the optimism, you've got the picture in Isaiah 2 and Daniel 2 of a stone, which becomes a mountain, which fills the whole earth. It's the kingdom of Jesus, right? He talks about it in Matthew 13 as the seed, which becomes the biggest tree in the garden. Jesus has this expectation that his church is, is designed and engineered to grow. And in Revelation 7, we have the multitude that no one can count. And so I have absolute confidence that Jesus' church is designed, built, made to grow. I just think that we need as pastors to get rid of our insecurity that defines ourselves around growth. And thankfully, I don't think that this is something that particularly is infected advanced. Because if it were the case, I wouldn't be up here, Sheshi wouldn't be up here, and Benisi's only got two people in this church, so he wouldn't be speaking this afternoon. So, um... <laughs> six, okay, okay. So, um... It's such a pleasure. I'm going to speak to you on the issue of preaching, confidence in preaching, and particularly focusing on, on the idea of authority in what you're preaching. If there's any way I can do that after the video that was on just now. Can I just see, have any of you not read this book, Preaching and Preachers by Martin Lloyd-Jones? Can you just raise your hand if you haven't? There's no shame. Okay, shame on you. You... There's one book, you must read that. Okay, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read to you two verses, and then we're going to take the idea from there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So if you have a gift... Use it. It applies to all the gifts that we have. But then he, he gets very specific. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be gl- belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. I think in the culture in which we live, cultures I should say, but I think it's broadly affected much of the Western-influenced world, there are a number of cross-currents which kind of affect your role and your understanding of who you are as a preacher and undermine you. I think about things like this. Um, The massive influence of relativism, moral relativism, relativism surrounding truth. Um, I remember Ravi Zacharias telling a story of, he's from India, obviously, telling a story of speaking on a university campus in the United States, and a white Western university student stood up and said to him, excuse me, Dr. Zacharias, why are you so fixed on this idea of either or when it comes to truth? You know, in the East, they believe both and, that both two things can be true at the same time. It's a ridiculous situation, a white student lecturing an Indian man on what they believe in India. And Ravi Zacharias just immediately retorted, no, no, sir, you're wrong. In India, when we cross the road, we know it's either the bus or me. 
not both and. <laughs> Relativism is huge and has affected us. Another is this preference for dialogue over monologue, the idea that modern minds are only receptive to a discussion rather than this outdated mode of someone speaking non-stop to you in a monologue fashion. There's the, thirdly, the prevalence of the image over the word. I think one of the fastest rising uh, social networks is Instagram, isn't it? And it's certainly hugely popular. Uh, when the, the, the refugee crisis was becoming a, a massive issue in our newspapers, in our news, in our consciousness in Britain, public opinion generally was fairly apathetic until a moment when there was a picture of a boy who'd been washed up on a beach was published on the front pages of our newspapers. And the image... Um, was so powerful that it moved the hearts of the whole nation to want to immediately accept as many refugees as we could take. Um, I, you can just see the power of the image as, as so, so undercut our feeling in the confidence of, of speaking, of monologue, of preaching. Um, the fourth thing is the great sin in the Western world, and I'm not sure to what extent this is true here, but I can only speak for what it's like in, in London and in Britain, and of the great sin of causing offense. Um, I think there's actually nothing that's considered more wrong in 21st century Britain, at least, than to cause somebody offense. So we even have laws now that are built up around the issue of whether you've offended somebody, which is just so thin-skinned, isn't it? I picked up an article talking here about the United States, but it's very similar to Britain. It says, something strange is happening in America's colleges and universities. Students are demanding that campuses become safe spaces cleansed of all words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. Harvard asked their law professors not to lecture on rape law or ever use the word violate lest it cause distress. And the new demand is for trigger warnings to be attached to any books or courses that might disturb a student's emotional well-being. Imagine in that kind of a situation, how do you speak with authority knowing that your message is offensive? And then there's just a fifth element here, just the fact that authority is a dirty word in the modern mind. I think much of um, the feminist movement has, has gained fuel from um, the notion that authority is inherently wrong. That there's something wrong in, authority, in, in the notion of authority. So people... You put all this together, and the right of the individual to be self-governed and not to have a truth imposed on them from outside has become the dominant way of thinking, at least where we are, and I'm sure it's massively true here as well. How does that affect you as preachers? I would suggest that you probably experience any number of these things going on in you, that you're afraid of offending and losing people. Um, if you speak too hard or too strong or too direct, that you make suggestions instead of truth claims, that you focus solely on that which is acceptable, palatable, easy to hear, certainly be selective about the topics you speak on, and that maybe you rely on other means of um, helping your church to grow, culturally acceptable means, uh, instead of relying on this outdated thing authoritative preaching. And I want to urge you not to buy in. And I want to do so firstly by asking the question, how can we recover the centrality and importance of authority in our preaching? And I want to give you three answers to that to begin with. And the first is this. 
I think you have to be totally certain of your calling. If you're not certain of your calling, then the likelihood is that you will feel insecurity about your ministry. And insecurity is killer in leadership in general, particularly killer in preaching. It means that you'll be the kind of person who, you know, licks your finger, puts it up to the wind, and just catches a breeze of what's going on in public opinion, and you'll shift and shapeshift and alter the way you speak to accommodate people's preferences and desires. It means that you'll feel um, a need to people please, a need to um, sort of honor people's desires above everything else. And you'll also feel an insecurity around whether you're successful or not. These things are really dangerous for the preacher. I believe that insecurity can only be overcome by God's affirmation of your role and call, his definition of what it is that you are here to do. And this is what we see going on in, in the letters that Paul writes. I just think about some of the early verses in 1 and 2 Timothy. He says, Paul, could you say this about yourself, something similar? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. He knew where he got his sense of calling from, didn't he? And he says it similarly in 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that's in Christ Jesus. And he goes on a bit further. He says, he speaks about the death and life that's come through the gospel. And he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Hear the word appointed. Appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So all of Paul's willingness to suffer, to be rejected, to be hated, to be beaten, to flee cities, to all the things that he experienced were rooted in the fact that he felt a deep sense of security. I know what I'm here to do. So it actually doesn't matter whether people receive me well or receive me badly. And he could then speak with a sense of authority in his call. It gives you a fearless confidence. It gives you that wonderfully attractive quality of authenticity. You're, no, you're on no man's paycheck. You belong to God. So that would be my first thing. You've got to be certain of your calling. The second is this. You, you need to be sure of what your calling entails. Now, the reason why I think we've got to think about this is because, have any of you noticed that when you've read the New Testament, there isn't really a lot of instruction on what the pastoral job description ought to be? I've wrestled with this a lot over the years because I found in pastoral work, often in the context in which I've worked, nobody's really managing me. So I've got to figure out how to lead myself manage myself, manage my time. And then you look to people around you and role models, you find people using their time in all kinds of things, from you know, people like Donny Griggs going out surfing to all the way through to guys who spend all their time just reading books and everything in between. And so when we look at the New Testament, well, what is it that we're absolutely certain of when it comes to our call? And it really comes down to only a few things. One of them is prayer, and another one is the preaching of the Word of God. I read to you the verses in 1 Timothy, which just backed this up yesterday, but I only want to glance at a couple of them again. For example, in 1 Timothy 4, how he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. And he goes on, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So if you take everything else out from what you do, Monday to Sunday, all through the week, 
friends, you need to hear this as a direct word from God, that this is what your calling entails. You're meant to be preachers if you're elders and leading churches. How do you use your time, and do you feel the sense of the weightiness of the calling of this call to be a preacher? Of course, I read also from 2 Timothy 4 yesterday. I charge you in the presence of God, he says, preach the word. Paul kept telling him this because he knew that the the healthiness of the church rises or falls on how seriously Timothy took this calling. And I get that from places like 1 Corinthians 3, because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, he articulates what the foundation of the church is, and he says it's the gospel. He says, um, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He's talking about his speech ministry. He's talking about preaching. So when he says, I laid a foundation, he meant, I taught people. And he says, someone else is building on it. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he talks about it being gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one becoming manifest on the day. And then he rounds it off and says um, that if if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a a reward. And if it's burned up, he'll he'll suffer loss. And friends, I want to to underline for you and and really press home to you this fact that your calling and the health of your churches depends largely on how seriously you understand that it is bound up with your teaching and preaching and communication of the word of God and particularly of the gospel. You could strip away pretty much everything else from church life, apart from the prayer, and I think you'd still have a church. These are the non-negotiables. So, certain of your calling, certain of what your calling entails. And let me add a third thing here. You need to obey. There's just some raw, bare obedience that's involved in this calling to to speak and preach with authority. And I want to just bring you back to that verse in 1 Peter 4. He says, speak. Whoever speaks, do you speak? Do you speak in front of the church? Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God. I know that people are nervous of authoritative voices because we tend to associate authority with loudness and aggression and, and, and all kinds of unpleasant things. And I don't think that's what authority looks or feels like. And I think also that we've confused being authoritative with arrogance. Um, that if you stand up and speak like you know what you're talking about, you must be an arrogant person. I want to just challenge that right now because, friends, there is nothing more humble than to sit under the word of God, accept it as God's truth, and then speak as though you actually believe that to be true. It is the height of arrogance to stand over the word of God and believe that you know better, to hold it up to questioning in the way that the skeptics do. That is arrogance. They, say, they, they think they sound humble. Because of their questioning demeanor, because of their toing and froing, does it really mean this? Does it really mean that? That's arrogance, friends. When we sit under the word of God and we say, if God, you've spoken, then it's my job to relay that, to speak as one speaking the oracles of God, that is humility. 
Your authority, the reason why it's humble is because your authority isn't coming from you as a person so much, although it is wrapped up with your calling. And it doesn't really matter what personality you have either. I'm a naturally introverted person, and I'm also very shy. But I know that despite those being my natural characteristics, when I preach, I have permission from God to speak with authority because the authority comes from these words and not from who I am. I thank God that he's chosen to use me. It's a precious thing. And I know that the minute I step away from this book, I don't have any authority. But it comes from the fact that these are the oracles of God. And therefore, there's a sense of a duty of obedience upon you. You must speak with authority. Why is this so important? I want to give you four answers. The first is because your manner and your tone say something in themselves about the message that you're speaking. To speak with anything less than deadly, serious authority is to deny the very message that you're communicating. So if I was to walk into this room and just say, fire, fire, didn't Stephen mention something about exits, the fire guy? No one believes me because my manner doesn't communicate that that what I'm saying is true or important. Your tone affects the believability of the message that you're speaking. People are asking all the time whether you think that what you're speaking to them is an important thing to be communicating. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones being asked why he never used humor in sermons. And certainly in the book, Preaching and Preachers, he talks about how some people are naturally humorous and they should use it and others are not and they shouldn't pretend that they are. But he, he talks about his own sense of, he, he said, I always felt like I was stood between people, there, that people's eternal destiny was in the balance and that I couldn't speak with humor because of the urgency of what I was saying. And I want you to understand, friends, that your tone and your manner communicate something about the message that you're speaking. People are asking, is it really important what he has to say to me today? Nothing communicates that more than authority. There's one speaking, the very oracles of God. People are asking, do you even believe it? How sure are you? I think it... It matters that you communicate that you really believe this stuff because the call to become a disciple is a call to come and die. So people are doubting whether you really believe what you're saying. They're not going to want to repent of their sin, lay down their lives, take up their cross, and follow Jesus, are they? I remember I came across, probably some of you saw this, some years back, there's an atheist magician of a pair of magicians, I think called Penn and Teller, but Penn um, had an experience after one of his gigs where he went out of uh, the venue and was stopped by a man who, um, who handed him a, a Bible, a little Gideon Bible, and knowing he's an atheist. And you might have thought how he'd be frustrated by being evangelized, proselytized in the street straight after a venue. If he was as grumpy as Lex, then, um, you know, <laughs> feel sorry for the evangelist. He's getting gruff here. <laughs> um, this is what he said about it. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize. 
I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize, and you say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is coming from an atheist. I take it as an urgent call. If you really believe this stuff, speak like you believe it, friends. That's my first answer, because your manner, your tone, say something in themselves. My second is this. Because the gospel is inherently confrontational and offensive. Jesus understood the effect of his own speech as being speech which hardened and softened. He talked about his ministry in this kind of language, the language of Isaiah, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. He wasn't here to be part of a popularity contest Jesus understood that his call involved something of the offense of what he was preaching. And this never comes across more clearly than in in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, where he says, We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? He's saying the same message. Some people hear what you have to say, and they're going to smell roses and freshly cut grass on a summer's day. It's going to be life to them. Other people are going to hear what you have to say, and it's going to smell like a dead rat in a sewer. It's kind of the Bovril or the Marmite effect. You either love it or you hate it. My friends, it means that you needn't worry if you are offending people. I would say you're probably doing your job. To try and remove the the confrontation element from the gospel is actually to deny the gospel. It's to, to water it down, to make it into something that it isn't. It is inherently offensive. The worst possible reaction to what we do on a Sunday is just, meh. I find that the most offensive thing when people, non-Christians, visit our church and they they walk away shrugging. I really feel like I've not done my job properly. (laughs) Paul closes off that passage. He says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. If you're a peddler of God's word, it would mean that you're in this for the money or for the personal gain. And so it would matter to you how popular you are, how many people smile and laugh. He says, no, that's not us. He says, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Death, life, we leave that in God's hands. My job is to speak, to speak like I believe it. Your tone says something. The gospel's inherently confrontational offensive. Here's a third thing. Because there's something attractive 
and persuasive about this authority. Have you ever noticed this? Let me read you a quote from Lloyd-Jones on this issue of authority. He says, Any study of church history, and particularly any study of the great periods of revival or reawakening, demonstrates above everything else just this one fact, that the Christian church during all such periods has spoken with authority. The great characteristic of all revivals has been the authority of the preacher. There seemed to be something new, extra, and irresistible in what he declared on behalf of God. So whether you picture Peter telling them that they're murderers because they killed the son of righteousness, or whether you picture George Whitfield standing up, as he's so often depicted with his hand in the air, saying, you must be born again. In all these situations of revival, the thing which you can identify is the recovery of conviction and of authority in the preaching of the word of God. And it is something compelling, something attractive. And I say, if if our age is reacting against authority voices, now more than ever, you're going to stand out if you speak with authority. So don't just become a milksop. Just blend in with the cultural trends. Recognize this is our moment. We have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. This is what will make us distinctive. We know the answers. We have the oracles. Lord Jones said also of his own preaching that when people asked him, what was it that attracted so many people to come and hear you preach and so many young people because they would flood to the chapel? And he just said this, it was the note of authority. I think it's so true. I think of it in all the preachers I most love and admire, who I feel I've received most from. That note of absolute confidence in the preached word of God. It's what arrests you. It's what grabs you by the collars. It's what shakes you down, helps you repent of your sins, helps you experience the transformation on the spot, energizes you for mission. And friends, if you've forgotten... This is also the way Jesus spoke. Do you remember how it's concluded at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I think people can have that experience of the same astonishment today listening to you. Of course, you're not Jesus. But when he said at the end of that same gospel that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, there was a transmission, wasn't there? He was commissioning us to speak in the same way that he himself spoke. Let me bring it round to a final point before I close. It's important to speak with authority because when you speak with the authority, you're speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ. And I would put it as strongly as this, that it is your job to represent him as though he were in the room speaking. How would he address your church? How would he command repentance? How would he call discipleship? With the strongest language, with the most firm tone, with the deepest conviction, with authority. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that about the gospel, that all of it's from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's been transferred to us. And then he goes on and says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. If the ambassador, let's say Barack Obama's ambassador walks in to a meeting with the, in the Iranian embassy and sort of suggestively offers some, some things we can just put on the table. You know, what do we feel about nuclear armament these days, guys? How are we feeling? You know, maybe we can negotiate something here. No, no. An ambassador doesn't go in. He goes in. He knows he's representing Obama and the entire American nation. And he stands there with the authority and says, you need to stop. And friends, that's your calling. When Paul says we're ambassadors and our calling is to do with this great ministry of reconciliation, he says God making his appeal through us. God is speaking through you. We implore you, he says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is why the reformers, when they wrote and understood and began to rethink what preaching was, you know, preaching had been these Latin pre-written nonsense monologues that no one understood or received anything from, and then the reformers stood up and started doing expositions, verse by verse through the, the Bible. And the way they understood preaching, they said that to, to, they understood that the preached word of God is the word of God. Which sounds quite strong, doesn't it? It sounds stronger than we would want. That's what Paul was saying here. 